Welcome to Tea Time with Mary. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm a former bikini fitness model turned self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tea Time with Mary. I am so glad that you're here and you are in for a delicious treat. Like I want you to think about the most amazing dessert you've ever had in your life for me it's like this coconut cream pie that I had at a restaurant in downtown Phoenix and I feel like that is what this conversation is going to be it's going to be like coconut cream pie and it sounds a little bit perverted but um (laughs) hey Eileen what's good (laughs) Um, I'm joined here today with my friend Eileen Jolie who I met on Instagram and I was just telling Eileen can I tell them the story Mm -hmm. about Yeah. Okay. So like I was talking, I've been talking about her nonstop to my boyfriend and my boyfriend's like, Oh, that's so cool. How do you know her? And I was like, well, I I don't. And he's like, well, what, like, where'd she come from? And I was like, well, I follow her on Instagram, but like, I feel like I know her. So that's how I feel about you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's mutual. (laughs) (laughs) I am so, so honored to hear that because honestly, your content has just every single piece of yours that I read makes me either cry or shake or have goosebumps or makes me really horny. (laughs) So that's a good sign, right? Yeah, those are great things. (laughs) (laughs) You are a therapist and you talk about sexual violence, trauma healing, um, embodiment, feminism, sex, and just being human. And I love that you say a therapist and human like you because everything is just so connecting. Um, can you tell us more about your journey and what led you to do the work that you do? Absolutely. So um, with my clients, I really do try and show up as that, yes, I'm very like clinically trained therapist, but also bringing those human elements um, and really acknowledging that everything, like the most wisdom I've distilled didn't happen at Harvard. It happened in my own therapeutic process. It happened in making the mistakes I made in my life or the healing work I did. Um, and that kind of really motivates every all the content I put out there, everything I write about, um, who I work with. It all comes from this place of like, I've been there too. And it's messy. And maybe I can hold some space for with you or walk with you. Um, so yeah, that kind of sums up that piece of that. <laughs> Wait a second. You went to Harvard? Uh, yeah, I'm presently in a master's certificate program there in trauma recovery. <laughs> what? Who am I talking to? <laughs> That's so cool, girl. And I write about orgasms. So. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, tell it, like, let's dive in. Tell us about orgasms. Like, what, what does your research and your discoveries, like, what is the main thing that you write about in, like, in related to orgasms? Yeah. So I found in my own therapeutic process and then with clients that there's a lot of emphasis in trauma recovery, specifically with sexual violence around processing the trauma. And thankfully, neuroscience has really kind of hit it home on what we can do in almost the step-by-step way to really help women process sexual violence. Having access to practitioners who have that map is a whole other conversation, but we do research-wise kind of know what is needed to facilitate connection with the body again. However, reprocessing trauma isn't the same thing as recreating pleasure in your life or in your body or knowing pleasure. Um, And so when I kind of hit that in my own life where... Um, yeah, like the trauma wasn't there anymore. And I actually had like a super hot, sexy surfer boyfriend. And I was like, but I can't actually experience pleasure with him because I don't know how, because I haven't, no one's ever taught me how to orgasm or what that feels like or any of those things. And so then that really became the focus of my own self-work was like learning what pleasure was. And so it's this kind of like this whole pendulation that I see in my office of working with people who experience sexual violence to like now, like we're talking about masturbation and orgasming and like recreating a sexual relationship and just, you know, you don't have to experience sexual violence to be cut off from your sexuality. Um, So Mm. a ton of the work that I do. Do you feel like a lot of people are cut off from their sexuality? And if so, how does that, how does that show up? Like, in our lives and in the way we feel about our bodies and ourselves in general? I think 
most people are cut off from their sexual energy. Um, just even the essence mm-hmm. of like living in a society that's so logical, so rational, that's kind of the opposite of that, like emotive, sexual, creative, um, passionate place. And for such a long time, that place of passion and play and creativity has been really stigmatized um, in both men and women. And so then to ask people to know how to feel good and enjoy themselves and like not be productive in the periods of intimacy, like sex is the only time we're not supposed to be really doing anything. We're just supposed to be enjoying it. Um, to me, seems so unbelievably problematic. And so it kind of comes to that place of like, if we actually allow ourselves to talk, tap into that like sexual arrows, creative energy, um, I think the rest of our lives start to shift because we start to acknowledge that controlling and doing and achieving don't actually always lead to pleasure, like the authentic kind. Mm, so what does lead to pleasure? I think that essence of really being, like slowing down, being simple, noticing the warmth of your tea, noticing the like mm-hmm. frothiness of that whipped cream on the dessert you mentioned, like all of that stuff is pleasure. It doesn't need to be overcomplicated and you don't need to do anything to achieve it or get to it. Yeah, I feel like even that word pleasure carries so much stigma because I work with a lot of pleasure positive brands. And whenever I say that, I always get a message that's like, that word makes me so uncomfortable. What's pleasure? Um, mm-hmm. And for me, like, I love using, I've always loved using that word. Like, I will take a really goofy, dorky picture with my boyfriend and I, and I'll be like, oh, it's just for personal pleasure. And he'll be like, why do you call it that? I'm like, because it's like literally pleasurable to look at really funny pictures and they're just for you. Um, But with that being said, a lot of people are just so tense about it. Mm -hmm. Like it's so, why is sexuality? Why is that? I mean, I mean, I know this could be a whole entire history lesson, but why is it especially so filled with so much shame for us? Because I know for me, like growing up, like I feel like I've had more trauma from being labeled a slut Mm. than I have from like actually being sexually violated you know what I mean oh 110% absolutely um we don't have any language for sexuality so what we see Mm. what we see that we don't know we instantly like push away or revert from and there's so much of that like that dogma and that rhetoric of internalized misogyny from other women or misogyny from men around sexuality of being the slut or the whore or all of those things. And the work that I've like really found that I like love and try and embody as best as I can is that like sacred slut. So that idea that like we are just as women entitled to pleasure as men are. And that that is a part of the equalness and all those actions of labeling a woman negatively for her sexual choices um, really come from our own internalized misogyny. And that's one of the most frustrating things to see as a therapist is to really be confronted in the ways that maybe it's still within me or to notice it in a client um, through how we judge other women for the choices they make with their body or how they show up. Um, you know, being showing up in the world in your fullness and your beauty and your pleasure and your sexual energy um, in a lot of ways and in a lot of places isn't safe and is going to make you target targeted. And it's like, that's a whole conversation that as women, we need to lean into. In order to make it be more safe, right? Absolutely. Because um, what we don't know, we are afraid of and we try and diminish it. Mm, what's a way that we can lean into that? Yeah, I think it's starting to really um, unpack those conversations and dialogues with yourself around who you think you need to be in the world and what you think you need to be to be a woman. Because everything that is kind of in that sexual realm is so much against the messaging of achieving or doing or striving. And so it's like if we start to acknowledge there's another place of being you know, what does that do? Who do we shift into? Mm. Can you give some like examples of how that manifests, whether in like clients you've seen or your personal journey? Because I have so many things going through my head and so many personal questions, but I don't want this to be like a diagnose Mary show. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So do you have like some 
examples of what that looks like? Absolutely. Yeah. So at times I've often sent clients um, to work with specific yoga teachers or to go to different kind of circles where I know that energy is going to be there. And oftentimes this is like the suggestion comes from a place of like, I know it's going to be really, really challenging for them. And when they get there, the first thing I kind of hear back when they come back to me is oftentimes those voices of judgment of like, oh, she was like a barely dressed yoga teacher. Like there was all this weird exotic music going on and I didn't know what was happening. And it's just like being in the place where there's already a little bit of respect in the relationship and they they trust me and they respect me and they kind of know there's something that I'm pointing them towards. It's having that mentorship from someone who's maybe a little bit older, who's journeyed that path and saying, okay, what about her presentation of sexuality made you feel uncomfortable? When in your life have you wanted to be more creative or more outspoken or more exotic or do that thing? And the world said you couldn't do it. And she's mirroring a part of you that's really, really pushed in the shadow. And can you actually lean yourself into that in this place now where you know it's actually welcomed? So that's an example of how I work with it clinically. And that also comes into like how I present. Like I'm not your cookie cutter therapist. I'm going to wear like boho dresses and have big curly hair and not wear shoes and be in that more sexual, sensual place. And even if that's just like having roses in my office, it's like, how can we tap into that and start to acknowledge that other side of ourselves? Wow, that is so powerful. That is so powerful. I've kind of, with the journey of self-awareness, I've kind of, not kind of, I've really started to take note when I'm judging somebody else because it just means like, I'm, I'm jealous that they can be that way. You know, I'm just, I'm just mm-hmm. envious that they have this life of freedom and that you know, success looks a little bit differently to them. And that image, like beauty looks a lot different to them. Um, And that's something that I've been able to like, it's been so hard to always be real with yourself and always recognize that everything is a reflection. Like all your thoughts are a reflection of just how you feel about yourself. And it's just, it, I don't know yet how to balance it because in my head, it's almost like overwhelming. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) absolutely and it's that place of like okay where are they reflecting in and then where is that potentially becoming like a a guise or means for me to continue to believe that I'm not good enough or inadequate or all of those stories right so it's like Mm -hmm. balance like when it's calling me into growth and when I'm using it against me to stay small Mm, exactly and and speaking of balance, like there's, oh my God, there's so many fine lines with everything. Where's like this balance between sexual liberation? Because, okay, I live in a time and a place that is very privileged that like, if I post a picture of my butt on Instagram, like, you know, I might get some slut shaming, but not all, you know, most people would comment nice things maybe probably you know what I mean but if somebody else does it then they would get shamed for it and then also like sometimes I'm still trying to explore like what am I what am I and what am I not okay with in terms of like revealing my body or dressing a certain way and like sometimes I'll go out and I like totally admire the girls who like you know when they wear that like leotard and it's just like bare legs and like they're literally wearing a leotard or like a straight up thong and they put like I don't know this like see-through skirt over it like I saw that in Vegas and I'm instantly triggered and I know I'm triggered only because I feel like I can't be that um Mm. but at the same time I'm like okay but I'm not actually happy when I am that so like I can never I feel like I will never be able to find that balance of like okay how much of this and and I was reading this book called Beyond Beautiful and it just talks about all those different things in regards to body image but there was one section that talked about how you know like that whole idea of slut shaming it's like mm. women are so or not even slut shaming it's um what is it the sexualization of women that's what it was the mm. sexualization of women it's like we're constantly fighting against it 
And then there's going to be somebody like an anti-feminist that's going to throw their hands up and be like, well, if you, you know, don't want to be so sexualized, why are you posting naked pictures on online, blah, blah, blah. And so I just like, don't know how to approach that. I don't know how to think about it. Yeah. I'm so resonating because it's been something that I would say I was in this like messy, messy place with for probably like five, six years. So when I, my background, I grew up um, pretty intensely um, in the dance realm and then moved into modeling and pageants. And so in time in my life, I was Miss Canada and was modeling and like that was that was that was Ailey. That was my whole presentation, I guess. And when I left, I made a very like a series of really drastic choices because I was like, I don't want to embody that. Like, I don't want to wear tight dresses anymore. I don't want to shave my armpits. I want to cut off my hair. I don't want to own a phone. I'm going to change my name. I'm going to do all of this stuff. And for both five years, literally, I don't think there was like one picture of me on any form of social media. I didn't even have it. And I said that it came from this place of not wanting to participate in the objectification of women's bodies. So I was that like really stark, like feminist. (laughs) And in my own work, I came to realize that for me, that was one way where I was continuing to hide my body. So yes, I had released the eating disorder, but my whole kind of um, bravado of, you know, like explicitly beautiful or explicitly naked body in the commercial senses as being objectification was how I was continuing to keep myself small. And it took a lot of like work to come back into the place where I am now where I'm like, I'm comfortable with my image. I'm comfortable with it being out there because I know for myself that my worth does not come from wearing the leotard thong skirt, which I wouldn't wear because that sounds uncomfortable, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I just did my style, but like my worth wouldn't come from that place nor would my sense of beauty because those things and spending that time really kind of in this cocoon allows me to really know that it's so internal. Like those things start from within and the type of beauty that I am most desiring for people to see isn't seen, it's actually felt. And what I'm wearing will never contribute to how I make someone feel. Hmm. So it's it's like such a shifty place. And I think it takes so much self-inquiry into, you know, where is my privilege? Where am I keeping myself small? What are all these competing thoughts and who are they actually serving? I don't know if keeping my image off social media was actually serving me or if it was just serving the voice of a past eating disorder to keep myself hidden. Like, I don't know. Mm, can you tell us more about your past eating disorders? Is that what brought you into into this particular work? Absolutely, yeah. So due to my experiences uh, like really young of sexual trauma, um, the eating disorder developed at a really young age. And for me, it was my coping mechanism. It was my means to escape. And living in the society that we do and being birthed into the body I was birthed into, having that really emaciated frame allowed me to have some like social fluidity or social currency um, to have the experiences of modeling or like Miss Canada. And then, you know, the eating disorder only got stronger, started with the sexual trauma, was very like amped up there. And it was the hugest reason or the main reason I left modeling and such forth because I was like, what I'm doing with food and body isn't okay. And all of the women I'm living with right now at this competition, all are really messed up with food. And I am struggling in my mind to understand why, because these women have every reason to be happy and they are the most miserable people I've ever been around. And so that was kind of my moment where I was like, okay, I'm going to leave. I didn't ever think I would be a therapist. That wasn't the plan. It was just more, I wanted to be seen for something else besides my body. So I was like, I'm going to go study and get really, really smart. And that was the thought. (laughs) Carl, that's literally like me to I mean, I didn't become a therapist, but I feel like 
I feel like I only had had three identities and I talk I talk about this like ever since I was 11 since the time my sister was born because I wanted to be like the perfect girl and the perfect girl was smart Mm -hmm. she was pretty and she was thin okay and those were like the three ways so it's like my grades had to be perfect my hair had to be perfect and my body had to be perfect oh so it was like yeah but I also I didn't realize until recently and I just started working with different forms of not just therapists but um I don't even know what to call them not like psychics but like hypnosis like different types of of work of the nature breath work and all this stuff and as I'm kind of going through my own timeline I realized that I used to think that my struggles with the eating disorder started when I was like 11 and my grandma picked on me um and then it kind of occurred to me that when I was 11 it was also the time that I was getting molested mm-hmm. um and so I was like oh like what a kawinky dink <laughs> and I never like put two and two together and it wasn't until I really started diving in that I realized that the eating disorder in the same way it was like either my way to disappear and then on the flip side it was like when I put on a lot of weight it was also my way of like putting a shield on over my body and the book yeah the person in the book that was like the game changer for me was Marianne Williamson's um Mm. she has a book called like a course in weight loss I know like her it's from like the 80s 90s so it really is about like losing weight but she talks about how it's like your body is like a manifestation of our emotions and at the time it was exactly what I needed um I don't know if that's necessarily true in all cases but it really was true for me Mm -hmm. so I really resonate with that what you said yeah, one of the most beautiful things of getting to hear women at their most raw and intimate is getting to have like really honest dialogues. And this isn't everyone's truth, but in my office, I would say it's about, I'm going to say 95, because if I say 100, I feel like maybe I've missed someone over the few years, but they're not coming to mind of really hearing women say that like how what I'm doing with my body on either end of the weight spectrum is protection and it's how I feel safe. And I love having those conversations because for me, it's so um, honoring and also like I view it as empowering to be like, this is how I'm choosing to take my power back and create safety in a world where I didn't have safety. This is what I started to do to try and foster safety. And I think the more the conversation starts to get pushed, um, I'm really looking around the links around sexual violence and eating disorders. Like one in three women experience sexual violence. One in three women experience some form of disordered eating in their life. Mm. I'm just, I can't, you know, with what I see clinically, I, to me, those things go so together the body is violated and then we either recreate that violation or we seek for that safety in harmful means. Okay. Talk to me about recreating violation. I kind of know, well, I don't know. I've read your post. I kind of have a seed planted, Um, (laughs) but you like shook my world with a post about that. So can you talk to me about what that looks like? Mm -hmm. So I had to do a research presentation on this. So it's something I'm super passionate about um, in a research setting wise. Um, When we experience sexual violence, there's all of these certain things that happen in the central nervous system, depending on the relationship to the attacker. So if it is someone that we've had a more long-term relationship with, we actually know research-wise we're not going to go into a fight response. And so a fight response is when your adrenaline goes up, your anxiety goes up, and you're like, I'm going to hit them back or I'm going to scream or I'm going to like kind of get away. When there's a more of an intimate relationship formed, we know that certain areas in the brain that would actually trigger a fight response don't get activated. That means that you're more likely to freeze um, or flight, which is trying to like move away or attachment cry. Attachment cry is super super important. I talk about it often because it's kind of like this place of bargaining. And it oftentimes doesn't externally manifest with someone trying to talk to the person who's attacking them, but more of this like internal uh, self-deception around what's happening. Like this isn't sexual assault. Like 
Maybe they thought I wanted it because I said that earlier in the day. I don't know. But we do know self-deception leads to self-regulation. So you're not going to be overwhelmed if you are in your own mind lying to yourself about what's happening. And we know that those are more common if someone knows the person that is um, sexually violating them. After the experience of sexual violation, there is an imprint that's made on the central nervous system, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. And if we go back to Freud, who I actually do bring into my office, you know, he's got a lot of stuff that I don't like, but he has some good Mm -hmm. stuff. He talks about repetition compulsion uh, for healing. And so when the body has been violated in that way, there are, thank you, neuroscience areas that actually seek to go recreate that same central nervous system state again. So if during the attack, you started kind of saying a narrative of like, well, maybe it's not as bad as it is, or I did that earlier in the day. So maybe mixed signals and you're just kind of going in your head trying to deny what's happening you're more likely to create states where you do that same thing. So maybe it's kind of self-deception around like, oh, like I like like that meal was too big or like I didn't really binge today or that doesn't really count as a purge because of X, Y, and Z. Or is it that flight response that you recreate of constantly moving away from things and moving away from people and socially isolating, which is the thing you wanted to do when your body was violated before? Or... Is it that fight response and you didn't get to be juicy and so then you're over-exercising and doing all those things to get the adrenaline and the cortisol? And we know research-wise that depending on the violation of the body and how the central nervous system responded, people have a natural impulse to put themselves in the same central nervous system states. So the body violation that we experience in sexual violence is really the neurochemical thing that we try and recreate with food. Because food is our first emotional and neurochemical regulator that we have right out of the womb. Um, so it's like the good one that we all use. Uh, does that make sense? <laughs> My neuroscience. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to like, uh, I'm sorry. I had to mute it because I'm crying. Um, biggest hug. Girl. Come on, you. I literally have spent so much money and time and energy like processing and like I told you the bits and pieces I do know about my sexual violence um Mm -hmm. but there's so much of it that I don't especially that because I'm still facing the effects of sexual violence because like the scenario you brought up it happened by somebody I not only knew but somebody that I admired and I was so close Mm -hmm. to and that I literally called my dad Mm -hmm. um So it was like my father figure um, and like, or somebody that I like prayed, like I was like, I wish this person could be my dad and they weren't. Um, And like, I, and the reason why I'm still facing the repercussions is because, you know, I thought coming out about it would help in some way um, to my family, but it only made things worse. So like, I literally got shunned from the whole family and it's like this horrible thing and I've never talked about it and fuck you <laughs> but no I mean thank you is what I meant to say um, but, <laughs> but the fact that I just had so 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 many breakthrough moments in your neuroscience talk about how because it was the person that was close to me that I've been trying to recreate it um and by giving myself all these, like, like justifying, so to speak, like he didn't mean it and it's, it's just mm-hmm. a sign of affection and it's love and I'm overreacting and maybe I dreamt it and I, you know, it wasn't true because like the whole family's telling me that it's not true, like all this stuff. Um, yeah, it just gave me like so much permission and so much validation and so much clarity. Yeah, it's thank you for sharing I can uh, resonate in it being being sexually violated by my father and someone who was a father figure um it's a it's a wound that's very messy um and I really really wish that there was like the education that I just gave you was more accessible and out there and provided 
and spoken about um, from people who aren't just white men. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I love that you said that. Because <laughs> it's there. Like, I can show you the research studies, but they're white men who are presenting it in this like cold clinical way without any feelings behind it. And what I found and why I keep educating myself in the way that I do is because the information needs to get out there because I know my healing really changed and my relationship to my experience of sexual violence changed when I understood the biology behind it. When I understood that my central nervous system is actually wired and attracted to predators. That's not Mm. me being messed up or fucked up or only liking bad boys. That's actually an imprint and work that I may have to do for a really long time to learn and understand that attraction that happens when someone else's neurochemistry triggers mine. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff like that. It's those conversations that allowed me to kind of move into less of a place of shame and more of a place of compassion with my own story and where and how it was still in my life. Mm, yeah, same girl, same. Like I got a question weeks ago and it was like a random DM. Somebody was like, you mentioned somewhere about your sexual violence. And I like don't talk about it a lot, but I'll kind of bring it up so that people know that there's kind of like more to my body image story than I talk about online, which is okay. Like I don't have to share everything, but there's also parts that I'm not ready to share. Um, but you know, whoever this person was, I'm so grateful that they dive so deep into my work. And they said something like, I found that, and this is something I totally related to. And I thought so many times they're like, I've been sexually violated. But, you know, I never like, stopped having sex. In fact, I started having sex with everything that walked. And that was literally me. um, Mm -hmm. For so many years where like, I think you, you said this, about recreating the sexual experience in terms of like food, how the same chemicals are released. And I'm assuming that you can recreate the same sexual experience in terms of just sex. And there, I'm sure there are other ways. Can you, can you speak more on that? Absolutely. Um, so for myself, um, so my sexual trauma and most of the sexual abuse happened before I was the age of 11. And then after um, I went out and recreated it in a lot of the ways of like modeling and being like very sexually promiscuous, being that person who was like basically wearing no clothes (laughs) and it's like 40 below and you're like, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. Like I was very sexually charged in my presence. And that was a huge piece of my experience. I didn't necessarily have the experience of going out and sleeping with lots of people because I had a lot of fear. Um, But in hearing stories from my friends who are also therapists who had that pattern after sexual assault of going out and sleeping with everything or just being, as I was like really sexually charged, there is this like really natural tendency and in therapy land or white male research land, um, (laughs) we call it And it is this like impulse of like, kind of like, fuck you, you took my body, my body doesn't mean anything. Sex with me doesn't mean anything like fuck you. Mm -hmm. I'll show you how liberated I am. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through all of the things. This doesn't mean anything. Just like that rape didn't mean anything. And it's been really interesting how many times that exact line, like that sexual encounter on Saturday night didn't mean anything just like that rape five years ago. How many times I've heard that from women who are in that pattern, that narrative of like, well, if I just go out and do it, it discounts all, like all sexuality. All sexuality is kind of void of meaning. And it is this like natural place of wanting to heal and finding that completion. and in somatic experiencing, which is one of the trainings I've done that's really neuroscience oriented. They talk about completing the trauma response. And so I often say to my clients who are in a period of hypersexuality, like your body is literally (laughs) trying to put you in situations that near the original trauma where you get what we call an act of triumph 
where you get something different, mm-hmm. where maybe mid intercourse, they stop and say, Hey, I noticed you disassociated. Like you're going out there. Some part of you is hoping for healing, but honey, sweetie, right now you're just harming yourself. And you get to choose the moment when you decide, I'm going to stop doing this thing and try something new. Or maybe there is something at the end of really, really acting that out. Maybe you will find some resolve. Maybe you'll misstep and actually find a genuine man who like stops that pattern. And that's happened for some clients where like they were just being really, really hypersexual. And then one of their partners was like, uh, yo, I actually really like you. I don't want to do this guy now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it is this like things can happen, but and then there's hyposexuality, which is often what survivors of sexual violence are labeled with, like oh, because you've been raped or you've experienced sexual abuse, you must be afraid of sexuality or it must be scary or you don't know, you don't know pleasure. Um, but really what I find most, there is some hyposexuality, but I feel like the hypersexualization after sexual violence is most common, um, I think, from that really natural place of wanting to take, to take back the power and have some autonomy again. Oh, my God. Thank you for saying that. Because I feel, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that, I mean, I have talked to some people, but it's more rare, same within my work that I've seen that um, the hyposexuality is present than the hyper. Because for me, I know it was hyper. And same thing with me, like you said, even if I wasn't like physically sleeping with everything that walked, it was still that kind of like the outfits and the picture taken and the way I would doll myself up and the the things that I would choose to wear and the way I would choose to talk and flirt and all those things. Like, wow, I'm learning so much about myself. I, by the way, please send me an invoice at the end of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Not like five years where I was off social media and didn't take any pictures of my body. That was, I call it like my five year detox from like my Mm -hmm. sexual charged energy. (laughs) Like before that I was just, full on all the time and then I just like it was it felt like drug withdrawals like those five years it was coming sober from being so sexually charged because I learned at a very young age that sexuality was how I would get anything and that's what people what people wanted from me Mm -hmm. and took that time of me pulling back to learn something different that I actually had something different to offer the world besides Mm -hmm. just that once you started healing, what was like the big turning point or the big, I guess, tool, technique or work that you've done that has changed the narrative without going to either of the extremes, if that makes sense? Like, I'm assuming that involves therapy. And I know I need more therapy in my life than I currently do because I'm so inconsistent. Um, But like, what does that process look like that would really pay off for somebody that is struggling with their sexuality whether they've been sexually violated or assaulted or um, have just experienced like really an eating disorder or negative tense feelings about their bodies in some way as they pertain to their sexual self like what is what does that work look like in your office yeah so um the thing that like gave me the most traction um it's very different than a lot of what I um, do in my office, but in some ways, I try and kind of modulate what I received. So after going through a lot of eating disorder treatment that wasn't really trauma-informed, I would often say like the eating disorder thoughts are gone, but now I'm just obsessed with men. And it was kind of like this running joke with my therapist of like, I can't stop thinking (laughs) about boys. Like It's just like, I want a boyfriend. Like story of my life. Oh God. <laughs> like so it was like maybe like a year and a half ago where I was walking around and I was like, I'm not thinking about food and I'm not thinking about men. And I actually just like broke down crying in the street and I was like, Life is good. <laughs> oh so my god. Intense. Um so one of the things that gave me the most traction in my sexuality, and this was a really bold move by my very white, very attractive, very well educated male. Californian therapist. Um, he put me in a group and I was doing a lot of, I was doing trauma-informed treatment. So I did eating disorder treatment and then I checked myself into a trauma-informed center. 
And he put me in a group um, with all male sex addicts. And I remember the first time I went, I was just like, he didn't really explain that they all had sex addiction. He was just like, you just need to come to this group and we'll chat about it after. And I was kind of like, we had a lot of trust. I, I was like, okay. I went and I was like sitting there. I had like all the blankets around me. And then after I was like really upset. And so he pulled me aside and we had a conversation about it. And he was like, you need to understand the other side of all the men who've raped you. You need to learn mm-hmm. about them and they need to learn about you. Are you willing to do this work that you don't have to do, Ailey? No, like I get it. You don't have to. But can you see the gift in this of men and women who have both been harmed and hurt each other actually doing some healing work? That sounds scary. And that changed everything for me. Wow. That is why as much as I work with women, like I'm so dedicated and so passionate to like having healthy masculine in my life. When we talk about sexuality, like female pleasure, like also acknowledging like men haven't really been trained to ask you what you like. Like they also don't really know they're watching porn. So if you aren't asserting yourself and saying, don't fucking do that to me, they're watching porn. So like you have to, in this place, really step up into your autonomy and agency in a way that is so, it's like kind of like do or die with sex. Like it's so important that you do it there. It's equally important that you do it everywhere else. And I really encourage my clients to, but in the realm of sex, we see all the shadows. So that's like a huge piece of the work that I do with clients is really like, okay, let's look at this full picture because in my own heart, I do not believe that a man, the disassociation that a woman lives with and the pain that she lives with after sexual violence is the same pain of a perpetrator. And so if we hold that and we hold that in our psyche, then in my work with women, how do I cultivate their their masculine side and their feminine side and heal both in collaboration. So they go out into the world and because they already are in touch with their more masculine side and their feminine side, they're attracted to the male gender who has that equal duality. That all makes so much sense about me. So, okay, more questions about the men's group. What is it like an AA for sex addicts kind of thing? Oh my God. Um, It was like, at a very bougie treatment center. So these were men from like their 30s to their 60s who were all like multi-million dollar CEOs of corporate companies who were literally like in their 60s having women, having sex with women who were my age that probably also had childhood trauma. (laughs) Oh my God. So you're telling me that there are men that actually go get help for these kinds of actions? Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, they do. Um, it's such an area. It's so under spoken about and underrepresented. Um, like I know for myself and my healing from sexual abuse, it was really easy to find therapists that would work with me and find support groups and all those things. It's so hard for men, like Mm -hmm. for men to do that work. Uh, it's really, really challenging because there's so much stigma there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Are you comfortable telling us like what exactly happened at this group? Like what would, what did you learn? Cause you said like learning from both sides, like what, what did that look like? What did you learn? Yeah. So getting to hear their stories of um, just like what sex gave them, like feeling like it gave them like purpose or that's like how they define their masculinity or that was like the only place they felt connection and actually getting to like, go back in time with them and hear like they were sexually molested when they were seven or when they were 14 Mm. or like this thing happened where they were shamed about their penis size when they were like 13 years old and getting to hear how all of that like toxic sexuality stuff like led them into this place of feeling like sexuality was the only way they could get validated and the more partners they had the more validated they were in society and actually getting to hear men in their vulnerability around that really shifted um, how I viewed them and how I viewed my experiences and gave me a sense of 
like compassion, um, which I never thought that I would have based off of my experiences. I was like, fuck men. And it was like the place where I softened and I learned. And I also, in getting to share my story in that group of what had happened to me, there were so many men who just broke down crying in the essence of like Mm. realizing that all of those like 25 year old women that they were sleeping with were probably survivors of childhood sexual abuse who were probably playing up daddy issues or whatever issues with them. Um, And that was really healing to actually feel like once they were conscious of what they were doing and how it was hurting someone, that there was a real desire to stop. Wow. So I am thinking like your, your methods must be controversial. Are they or no? Um, and I don't mean that like I see, like I see it because I have been doing a lot of work and I think it really matters where you do the work that you do. So like the work that I've done has been in like LA and San Diego and Vancouver where you live and Bali and in like this West world that is becoming more and more and open to unconventional techniques. Um, whereas I find that other areas of the world do not have accessibility to that and actually don't have access to these kinds of healing in general just because it's like only heal this one way <laughs> um through like you said what did you call it? old white man men like asking you how you feel about like how do you feel about that you know um and that never appealed to me of course as I I think that that is what the stigma about therapy is so you really are changing the stigma so I'm asking not because I personally feel that way but because I'm wondering like what you deal with yeah, absolutely. Um, I write from my presentation on Instagram to my website to choosing to write in a way that's disclosing. I really do my absolute best to kind of crack through the model of the therapist. And that is like that cookie cutter person who like sits on the other end of the room and they like wear um, business chic stuff and they, you know, how do you feel about that? I'm not that person. And I haven't been trained in that way. And a lot of the training and I acknowledge my privilege in it has been really in somatics, has been in these areas of, you know, weaving neuroscience with depth psychology and doing my absolute best to show up differently because I know that the therapists that showed up as humans, like that white male therapist who brought me into the sex addict group, like he didn't wear shoes. He was totally (laughs) just this like, PhD neuroscience, beautiful man who was just like, come on, like we're doing this. And I trusted him because he didn't show up as my therapist. He showed up as a human human being who really fucking cared about me and really, really wanted something different for me. And so that's why I try and offer my clients. It is like controversial in the sense that like, I'm not hitting that, like we're going to do CBT and it's cookie cutter. But I've also never marketed myself in that way. And everything that I offer um, is backed up by research and neuroscience. It's just that realm of somatics can feel very elitist. And it is really like the, the front edge of healing right now. So it hasn't trickled out yet across the board. But I think therapy in like 10, 5, 10 years will be very different than what it is right now. I love that you brought that up. I think that's the word that I was looking for that I never want somebody because I talk about I mean, I haven't yet talked about my experience in breath work, but I'm definitely um, diving more into exploring not just breath work, but plant medicine and sound healing and meditation. And, you know, if you follow any blogger on Instagram from LA, <laughs> it seems <laughs> like they all are drinking like $15 smoothies and going to $300 an hour therapy sessions and going to $100 an hour sound healing, which like, what the fuck is that anyways? And I, again, like, I love that you say I acknowledge my privilege, and there's not much more to say. But I'm very grateful that I have gone to Bali, and I've explored not just what the white people in Bali who teach yoga there offer, but also what the uh, locals offer, you know, of just like, listening, and of just like giving you a hug or, or, playing on their sound bowls or whatever that may be that somehow is just like the energy that you put into it is just so that they put into it is just so overwhelming like I'll never forget like this one 
guy who called himself a healer who was wearing no shoes in Bali who like totally probably had a crush on me and asked to take me home and in Bali you kind of just trust people and he did and then he's like okay I'm a healer tomorrow I come heal you and he came and he like healed me he literally healed me from my breakup in like one little tea date and that was it um and then he also ran errands with me before the Bali self-love retreat but that's like those kinds of people that like genuinely care and they are who they are and like I think some people are listening to this like what the hell Mary like what do you get yourself into but I mean like there's certain people that you just feel that they care about you Mm -hmm. and that it doesn't have to look like like you said that cookie cutter way no like some of the best personal therapy that I have ever done. It's interesting that you mentioned like psychedelics or plant medicine, because that was the second moment that came to my mind, um, the sex therapy thing, and then experiences with psychedelic psychotherapy. And I never thought that I would go into that realm of like receiving that as a client, but it came from like those genuine people who were like, I know that this is really scary and taking a plant medicine is really, really terrifying. But because I knew that they really, really cared about me and they were already a therapist or already someone I deeply trusted, I consented and said yes. And those experiences have been profoundly healing um, and so impactful because I think also just like leading through intuition and trusting is where all your healing will really happen because real healing is ultimately just connecting you to that deeper you inside. Mm, I love that. Yeah, like... Two weeks ago, I went to a breathwork class and I didn't know that they were going to offer plant medicine there. And my friend just told me about it. I knew nothing about it, but I was just like, whatever, like I'll go. Um, so Monday night, what else am I going to do? Um, <laughs> and I went and they offered hape, which is, it's not a psychedelic, but it is a type of tobacco that mm-hmm. accesses certain parts of the brain and then breathwork in and of itself also releases DMT, which is the same stuff as from ayahuasca. So anyways, I had this and I've never done anything like that before. Like I've done some crazy cool seminars and personal development stuff, but like outside of life coaching, I haven't like tipped into the whole psychedelic um, and plant medicines. Yeah, I hope to. Um, but what was I going to say? But yeah, what I really appreciated about that particular workshop was that it was like donation um, mm. And they asked for a certain amount. And hopefully a lot of people or I've heard that a lot of workshops are like that where mm-hmm. it's not necessarily pro bono because like I do have I do struggle with this thing that like what if somebody who's listening to this right now like where are they going to find this kind of stuff like mm-hmm. if I didn't interview Haley for my podcast like they would ne- like I would never know if I didn't find you on Instagram. Do you know what I mean? Like what can we do? you know, what's something that we can do to pursue our healing journey, especially healing from sexual violence, if we don't have access to things like therapy, or, um, you know, different ceremonies that we hear about very privileged people do, like, what is, where can we start? Yeah, Um, I think, in my experience, the starting point of like, knowing, okay, I want to be on this healing path right now. And those doors aren't open to me. But this whole healing path is really about me connecting to me. And those might be some like freeways or highways to connection. There's also some really harmful stuff that can happen in those realms. Mm -hmm. But you ultimately are the one connecting to you. So then it becomes this practice of, okay, um, can self-touch be a part of that? Or maybe it is going and buying myself a rose or maybe not even going and buying a rose. Maybe it's like standing outside in the sun and actually really acknowledging how those rays of light impact your skin. And it's like creating that place in you where it becomes a practice of reclamation, where you're constantly in this mindset, okay, I am reclaiming myself. I am re-embodying myself. I am in this process of coming home. And that work of really like integrating and moving into yourself. Yes, a beautiful therapist can hold space. Yes, plant medicine can assist. But ultimately, it has to be you who continuously chooses you moment after moment after moment. And that happens 
kind of everywhere else but the therapist's office. It happens there, but you have to be dedicated to that. So that's what I always tell my clients in the essence of like, okay, finances are what they are, but can you still take that hour for you? Can you sit and drink a hot cup of tea? Like it doesn't have to be big. It just needs to be something where you're intentionally putting the focus back on yourself. Mm, which brings us like full circle to what you mentioned at the beginning about pleasure and about mm-hmm. tasting the whipped cream and um, taking a moment and like letting yourself feel pleasure and slowing down mm-hmm. in your life. Mm-hmm. So yeah. inspirational. You are so inspirational, seriously. Oh, thank you. You As blew me you. away. And I like, <laughs> I'm so excited to continue fostering this relationship. I know mm-hmm. that my audience will keep seeing more of you. Can you remind me like what, what I shared of yours and what I said where you were like, Oh yeah. Like where we really connected. Yeah. I think it was the like five different types of sex. And then there's something like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, and then I think a post like way back around like, um, orgasming during sexual assault is a protective Mm. response. Yes. Okay. Wait, what is it? What type of sex serves you? I just want to make sure I put it in this, in the show notes, because that was something that like made me cry a a post of yours, the five different types of sex. Mm Hmm. Um, because yeah. everybody needs to read that. Read that. Read that. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I said that. <laughs> read that. <laughs> what type of sex serves you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. I love that. I will put that in the show notes, and you guys have to read it. Haley, thank you so much for pouring into us today. We, I can really hear your heart and like every word that you say, and I am just so grateful that you came on here to serve. Thank you for having me. It was an honor. Where can we find you online? Um, can we hire you? Can I hire you? I'm about to hire you right now. So you have one less spot. <laughs> um, yeah, super simple and easy. Uh, website is just aliejolie.com. Um, Instagram is just aliejolie as well. Um, I am a therapist in private practice in Vancouver. Um, I do take clients online. Um, right now I'm, yeah, one of the ways that I really consciously choose to show up differently as a therapist. Um, I had a therapist for years when I was sick with an eating disorder and she'd sit across the room and she'd be like, okay, Ailey, when am I going to see you next? And I never had the courage to say, I don't ever want to see you again. So it took (laughs) years. So I, in that essence, all of my booking to see me, to work with me is all online and you book in as you choose. And in that essence, like weightless, all those things exist and don't exist because it really comes from that place of like, okay, am I showing up and I'm going to take care of my scheduling in that way. So it's always there. Okay, I want to tell everyone to hire you, but I'm probably going to take up most of your time. No, but seriously, <laughs> I'm about to book. Um, you guys go book. You're online, right? So it like happens via yeah. Skype? Uh, Zoom. Zoom. Awesome. Zoom. So hopefully it's accessible to, no matter, yeah. to everyone, no matter where they're at. Thank you so much. And I just want to spell your name. A-I-L-E-Y. Yes. J-O-L-I-E on Instagram. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Is there any like final, final tidbit you want to share? Like what's, like, I just don't want to let you go. Do you see I'm like stalling? (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that I often say to my clients is there can be a really big pressure to come back into the body or even in the essence of the language I've used, like reclaiming the body or moving back in. And I just always really want to honor, like, if you feel disconnected from your body, if you feel looped in diet culture, if you feel like um, you can't orgasm or you feel like sex is overwhelming, like really acknowledging that the body has so much wisdom. And when you are ready, those patterns will start to shift and move on their own when there's the right containment and support. And it's really healing is this process of trusting that I don't have control and trusting that your body and your mind and your psyche and your heart are 
constantly moving you to your utmost best state of wellness and love and all of those things that you don't actually have to force that process. That is so beautiful. I feel like, you know, that quote, that's like your body loves you. It's time to love it back. Mm -hmm. I feel like you just like leveled up that quote times like a million. Oh, thank you. (laughs) That's like, that's like what it needs to be. That's like really what it means that like your body knows Mm -hmm. and knows things. It's like, it's, evolved over thousands of years like in those things like listen mm-hmm. i love that thank you so much thank you thank you Elliot. i love you so much and i'm gonna stop the recording but i'm gonna keep talking to you so thank you everybody for listening to the show um make sure to find Ailey on instagram and on her website her writing is just absolutely breathtaking and i will see you on the podcast next week bye Bye.